Well, let's uh, get started with our doing our Bible class, studying the book of Daniel. We had our introduction to the book last week. We have just maybe a few things uh, to pick up from the introduction, but I think we can do that as we get started here. So uh, let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation, uh, closing our eyes, uh, bowing our heads, and you have this opportunity for personal private prayer. And then I will open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for uh, the text of Scripture and every opportunity that we have to study it. We're thankful for, uh, specifically for the book of Daniel, as we will observe him in a pagan environment. Um, certainly uh, a much more difficult situation than uh, we will face on a day-to-day basis, but uh, he provides for us uh, an example, uh, a pattern, a model. And we also see Father, of course, in everything uh, as we uh, look at the Word of God and as we look at history. We see your plan and your purpose. and uh, So we ask for your blessing and our understanding of this uh, marvelous book. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, as we look at the book of Daniel, what we're seeing here is that... Daniel is one of the, I think we could say, uh, one of the key characters in the Old Testament uh, who demonstrated by his life how to uh, handle, uh, endure, I think we could say, uh, extreme adversity and calamity. Uh, he, He will go through... Uh, initial testing and experiences that will help him to mature in his life so that later on he's able to walk into a lion's den and uh, have all the confidence in the world that this is God's God's plan, uh, that God is there. God will protect him and take care of him. And so Daniel is um, a youth. We're going to see how this starts out. But, of course, he's uh, someone similar to uh, uh, Job. And as a matter of fact, he's even mentioned uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, He's uh, mentioned with, I think we may have discussed this last week, with Noah and Job as three... uh, biblical characters that are examples for us. And it's interesting that Ezekiel, who was a prophet in exile in Babylon, would uh, would mention Daniel. And so uh, that is one of the uh, proof texts that we use to understand that this is, uh, if we had any doubts, that this is true, his, truly historical individual and a historical book. But anyhow, what we see with Daniel is he's going to apply uh, Bible doctrine to his life. And he not only applies it periodically, but he stands fast and he applies it consistently. 
last week I mentioned just briefly, and I used this one slide, that Daniel, if we wanted to, to break the book down, uh, here's the book of Daniel, chapter 1, the pagan world of Babylon, where Daniel is going, where Daniel finds himself. And that's where our book begins. But what I wanted to show you is the outline of the book of Daniel from a consideration of the, the language. Um, first of all, we have the history of the prophet of Daniel. Daniel's, uh, sometimes it's called Daniel's personal history uh, as he begins his life in Babylon. And we see this really in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the history of Daniel, his personal history. It's the first section, uh, which is, in fact, the first chapter. Um, This is also Daniel's introduction to and his entry into um, Gentile politics, we could say. He, uh, He has grown up as a young man in Israel, in um, uh, the tribe of Judah, probably in Jerusalem. And so he is familiar with uh, Jewish politics and Jewish culture, but now he's being introduced to Gentile politics and Gentile um, culture. Secondly, we have the history of the Gentiles beginning in chapter 2 and taking us all the way through chapter 7 until we arrive at chapter 8. So, this second division, we could say, is the history of the Gentiles. Uh, So, Daniel is going to be interpreting dreams, and those dreams provide us insight into Gentile history. Uh, History of the Gentile nations, empires. And so, we could say that While the first one is Daniel's entry into Gentile politics, this is Daniel in Gentile politics as he talks about this history and interacts with Nebuchadnezzar about his dream. And then our third area is the history of Israel. And the history of Israel, again, is going to come by way of dreams. And we start chapter 8 and we go through the end of the book. Daniel 8 8 to uh, Daniel 12. Uh, It's going to explain the future of Israel and Israel's relationship to these Gentile politics because Israel is going to be progressing through what's uh, very often known as the times of the Gentiles. So, uh, we could say that this is Daniel learning about Israel's history during Gentile politics. Those are just kind of things that we've picked, we pick up and use. But the other part of this that's very interesting is that the language in which it's written, chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. That's the first section. The second section is chapter 2 up to chapter 8, the end of chapter 7. It's written in Aramaic. And then the last chapters, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, are again written in Hebrew. And uh, we believe that the reason that Daniel uh, 
writes the book in this manner is that the first part of the book, the part about Daniel and how he um, is integrated into Gentile politics, is going to be more, uh, more interesting or more focused or more applied to uh, Jews who are going to be reading this. And the last part as well, because that's the history of Israel. And the intervening part is really focused on the Gentiles. And so as the Gentiles are reading the book, or the book is being read to them, they would have a much easier time reading chapters 2 through uh, up to chapter 8 because it was written in the what we often call the lingua franca, the, the coin of the realm of that time. Uh, they would not have been uh, familiar with Hebrew, although the two languages are, are very close, Aramaic and Hebrew, but it would have been what we might say a, a dialect that uh, would have been unfamiliar to Gentiles. Now, uh, at the end of... Uh, well... Let's look at 2 Chronicles 36.15. Turn to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. It's the end. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15. And it gives us a, a divine commentary on the fall of Israel in the 6th century B.C. And it says, And the Lord God of their fathers, referring to the Hebrews here, sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people, on Israel, and on his dwelling place. In other words... Uh, dwelling place here being Jerusalem. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lord, arose against his people, till there was no remedy. In verse 17, it says, Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, and this would be Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hands. Now look at here. Now look at verse 18. We're going to see this. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of his leaders, all these he, and this is Nebuchadnezzar again, took to Babylon. And then, of course, we see that he burns the house of God, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. And all of this that's being reported in Second Corinthians Second Chronicles here, uh, verse 36, 15 and following, are 
extremely important background information to us as we begin chapter 1, verse 1, because this date that is occurring in Second Chronicles occurs in 586 B.C. So it is telling about all the warnings that God has given to Israel. And one of those warnings was two earlier deportations, which we've studied. One was a deportation in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel goes to Babylon. There was another one in 597 B.C., and that's when Ezekiel goes to Babylon. So Daniel now finds himself as a young man, we'll we'll see the word youth uh, in verse 5, I believe it is, and we have these youths who are in Babylon, and they are there in 605 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar has uh, a response, has a, uh, a plan for them, we would say. And it says, um, again in Second Chronicles 36, at the end of verse 20, uh, they became servants, those who were carried away, the exiles, became servants to Nebuchadnezzar and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Daniel will live through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He will live through the reign of uh, sons and grandsons right into the Persian kingdom. So Daniel is going to be there during this time. And it says, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. The Sabbaths, Israel was to take a year. Uh, every seventh year they were to take a year off. But they'd, they had, uh, they had uh, not done that. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And while Daniel's, this is being, this is being written much later than Jeremiah wrote. Jeremiah reports the same thing, that it's going to be 70 years. And Daniel, we'll see this later in our text, is going to um, realize from Jeremiah uh, that they're to be deported for 70 years, be in exile for 70 years. So, uh, this is where this is some of the history that we have as we begin uh, our study of the book of Daniel. Uh, one of the, the principles I would like to note here is that the grace of God warned Israel over and over and over again with these prophets. And the one prophet that we have here right at the end that's mentioned is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet uh, during the time of the, uh, of the Babylonian invasion and destruction of Jerusalem. So that we have, and I think I mentioned this last time, we have really the, conf- the confluence of these three prophets. Jeremiah is a prophet to Judah in the land prior to the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of Jerusalem. 
Jeremiah stays in the land until the destruction, and then he is he is carried away captive, but he's taken by a Jewish contingent down to Egypt. So that's where he spends his time. Uh, Daniel, of course, is deported to Babylon, and Ezekiel is deported to Babylon. And during this period of time, these three prophets are active. All right. Uh, You'll notice that even though they were warned, grace before judgment. So uh, the grace provision of God was to warn Israel that this was coming. Warn them continuously, over and over, but they didn't respond. Uh, And this is... Again, I'll often say this, that Israel in the Old Testament is viewed as an example of the believer's life. So that uh, God wants, is, he wants to have a relationship with Israel, just as he wants to have a relationship with the believer. But God wants us to be faithful and obedient to him. And when we're not, he brings Uh, conditions and situations into our lives that tries to get our attention and he does this over and over until finally you know we may end up in greater discipline than um, we can tolerate Uh, so um, one of the lessons that we're going to learn and I'll mention this again is that when Daniel is deported to Babylon he arrives in Babylon And immediately Nebuchadnezzar is going to uh, initiate a plan. And Daniel is prepared for it. Daniel and his three friends are prepared for this. So God uses prepared believers. Daniel had not prepared himself in Babylon, but he had been prepared, and we'll see that it's more than likely prepared by his parents while he was still in the land. So he was being prepared for future testing and God uses prepared believers and Daniel was in fact prepared to face the tests that he's going to encounter and endure in Babylon and because he's able to face those tests he's going to be able to be used by God God can use Daniel another lesson that we'll learn and we'll see as we progress here is that um, God's grace is sufficient to protect the believer Daniel is in a completely pagan environment, but God is going to protect him. Uh, God does not require of us uh, to do anything uh, for which he has not provided grace and uh, at the same time protect us. So that no matter how horrible the circumstances might be and no matter how extreme the pressure might be, for us to drift or give up our faith we still need to realize that we can trust in God and God will protect us. God will take care of us. All right. Uh, one of the things that uh, I could mention, I think I'll pass, pass on it at this time, um, is that when we mentioned in Second Chronicles 36, 18, uh, 15 and following, that there were warnings and warnings and warnings and warnings. That takes us back 
to an understanding of either what we sometimes call the five cycles of discipline or the five stages because they really don't come in cycles but they come in stages each one building on the other one and the stages are found in Leviticus 26 and they're also found in uh, Deuteronomy 28 and each one of those stages is simply more uh, rigorous beginning with difficulties with crops beginning with illnesses and it continues to work its way up until finally we have in the fifth stage we have military invasion and military conquest so uh, uh, the military conquest really occurs in or we could say military oppression occurs in the fourth stage and that's when Daniel was carried away in 605 and then finally the destruction of the nation occurs in the fifth stage and that of course happened in 586 when Babylon as we've read in Second Chronicles completely destroyed Jerusalem alright let's go back to Daniel uh, as we go back to Daniel we pass through uh, the book of Isaiah. We studied the book of Isaiah last time. And Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom, but Isaiah was a prophet much earlier. Um, He he probably began, I think I put this on the board last time, uh, probably began his ministry, and there's some question about this, whether it was 750 B.C. or 740 B.C., but he has a long... uh, ministry uh, to the southern kingdom even prior to the northern kingdom's uh, destruction in 722 BC to Assyria so Isaiah has a long ministry and during that ministry has several prophecies that are going to be very pertinent to what we have uh, in Daniel and we'll see that but um, Isaiah his ministry comes to a close probably uh, around 690 or 680 B.C. So he, he wrote, he had to have written uh, at least a hundred years prior to the deportation of Daniel and even uh, earlier than that for the deportation of the southern, uh, the final, the third uh, deportation. So... Uh, Just a note of that because we're going to see one of those prophecies here. Let me begin reading in Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. I mentioned Jehoiakim just briefly last week, and we'll touch on who Jehoiakim is here in a moment. Because... I think it's helpful to know at least something about some of the names. Uh, You may not remember them very long, but at least if you can say, okay, uh, all right, I think I have that individual fixed, so it's just not a a name that you pass over. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, this is a king of Judah who is on the throne in 605 B.C. And that's when this occurs. This is 605 B.C. Third year of Jehoiakim. He'll reign for 11 years. So when Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem in 605 B.C., 
doesn't destroy the city. As a matter of fact, there's no military conquest. There is confrontation, but Israel becomes subservient to the Babylonians. And in order to ensure that that uh, persists, Nebuchadnezzar takes a group of people back to Babylon with him in 605 B.C. So that's what we see here. Uh, The reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There's not a destruction there, but again... Uh, Jehoiakim gives in and they become subordinate to them verse 2 and the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar both the name Babylon and Shinar are important to us and I'll address that in a minute. Into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God, lowercase g, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ash Penaz, the master of his eunuchs, some of your translations may say officials, and that's uh, uh, an excellent translation, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants. Notice the king's descendants here. So that's royalty. And some of the nobles. Young men, here's verse 4. I thought this young was in 5, but it's young men, youths, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand. Notice the emphasis there. Uh, that we have it doesn't just say they were smart there's a lot more said and we'll uh, see why that is who had the ability to serve in the king's palace whom they, they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans and the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies food the best food and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them. This is not a couple months. This is going to be extensive so that when they finish, they will know the language. They will know the culture. They will have been indoctrinated. So that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king in the presence of the king, we would say. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel... And you know, if we were sort of, these are transliterated, so if we were really pronouncing this in the Hebrew, it would be Daniel. And so you can see the L on the end relates to God. Uh, Mishael, again, L. Mishach, Mishach, and to Azariah, abending, uh, and to Azariah, uh, Abednego. Uh, that's probably as far as we're going to uh, uh, progress today. But uh, there's, uh, there's a lot to be, to be seen here. And you'll notice that um, these are three young men who are selected, who are not only, not only taken from Judah, but they are uh, from the, uh, the nobility. We could say they're from, and also from the royal family. <clears throat> uh, 
All right. Let me uh, address what we have here with regard to the reign of Jehoiakim. I think one of the easiest ways to do this, and let me check my... It's to go back into Second Chronicles. Let's go back to Second Chronicles. And in Second Chronicles... didn't write this passage down. At least I don't think I did. Uh, now I know how I can find it. Yes, it's First Chronicles 3. Turn to 1 Chronicles 3. Second Chronicles 3 in verses 15 and through 16. I want to, I want to talk about the sons of of Josiah sons of Josiah mentioned in verse beginning in verse 15 the sons of Josiah were Johanan the firstborn and Johanan is mentioned only here and also over in uh, 2nd Kings but this is the firstborn and it's the only place where we see or hear his name. We don't know anything more about him. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he if he died uh, uh, or he was just passed over. We, just, we simply don't know. So the firstborn was Johanan. So we can set him aside. The second was Jehoiakim. The third was Zedekiah. And the fourth, Shalom. And uh, you may have a note there that Shalom here, um, his real name is uh, Jehoahaz. So, um, now, let's go from there to Second Kings. And I'll try to do this as quickly as possible. Second Kings... chapter 23 2 Kings chapter 23 and we're just going to skim these passages so that you can see these are the sons the sons of Josiah and in verse 28 of 2 Kings 23 we see the death of Josiah he had tried to prevent Pharaoh Necho from going, traveling up to join the Assyrians um, to fight against the Babylonians. And he was killed because this was not something that God wanted him to do. It was certainly not necessary. God was, uh, uh, Josiah, uh, 
Josiah thought that, or had an alliance with Babylon, and he was relying on them for protection, and he was hoping that the Babylonians could defeat the Assyrians without the uh, Egyptians being there, and he was going to delay the Egyptians while it ended up costing him his life. And so you'll notice in verse uh, verse 30, it says in the second half, the second uh, sentence in verse 30, and the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him. This is the fourth son, Shalom from First Chronicles 3. So this is the fourth son. And we're not told why they take the fourth son instead of the first or the second son. But they select this son, and it's maybe because he was more compliant, maybe the elders in Israel thought that they could... Uh, work with him better, I have no idea. Or maybe the king had designated him to be his, uh, the heir apparent. We're simply not told. But since Pharaoh Necho has defeated uh, the Israelites, Josiah, in the battle of Megiddo, he comes down, or he doesn't come down, he, he decides he's not going to allow a king-designate from Israel to be on the throne. So he dethrones him, takes him off the throne, and that's what we see. Just take a quick look at verse 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. And now let's skip down to verse 33. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamas. So he sends down Uh, retrieves him, brings him up, and puts him in prison. And you'll notice in verse 34, Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the second son of Josiah, king in his place. This is our king, the king of Daniel 1.1, Jehoiakim. So this is Jehoiakim, who Pharaoh Necho has placed on the throne. And you'll notice... uh, He changed his name to Jehoiakim in verse 34. And Pharaoh took uh, Jehoahaz and went to Egypt. And that's where that youngest son died. So we have the first son set aside. Now we have the the last son set aside. Verse 35 says, Jehoiakim... Verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. So we're into that third year when Daniel is taken captive and goes back to Babylon. Uh, and we could read that in verse, ver, the first verses of chapter 24. Uh, let's go over to verse Five of chapter 24. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, after 11 years, all that they did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers. Then his son Jehoiachin uh, reigned in his place. This is very interesting. So uh, Jehoiakim... The easiest way to remember this is Jehoiakim ends with an M, and Jehoiakin ends with an N, N follows M, and so we have Jehoiakim and then Jehoiachin. So we actually stepped out of the immediate family of Josiah, and we have 
a grandson, you could say, for a while. But he's only going to be on the throne for three months. So we start with three months, we have 11 years, then we go to three months again for Jehoiachin, and he's going to be removed. Jehoiachin, in verse 8, was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem three months. Did I say three years? I meant three months. Um, Verse 10, at that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem. The the city was besieged. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers, went out to the king, and the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of the reign, took him prisoner. And then we're told uh, in verse 17 of that same chapter, verse chapter 24, then the king of Babylon, Babylon made um, Matina, Matania, uh, Jehoiachin's uncle, who is Zedekiah. This is the, the third son, Zedekiah. So, Zedekiah is 21 years old when he became king and he reigned for 11 years. So it's an interesting parallel of those. And the only reason I wanted to do that is because it, it, it places us in history so that we can see at the time uh, the good king, the last good king of Israel is Josiah. And none of his sons or his grand, the one grandson are what the Bible describes as obedient or faithful kings. Um, the first son... Uh, Jehoah has, reigns for three months, uh, is taken down to Egypt where he dies. The next king is Jehoiakim, our king, reigns for 11 years, but he does evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, he dies. His son, Jehoiachin, replaces him, reigns for three year, three months, uh, does evil in the sight of the Lord. He's removed by Nebuchadnezzar. And the final son of Josiah, uh, Zedekiah, is placed on the throne, and he'll reign for 11 years. So we're sort of in the middle of this crossover of administrations between uh, Josiah, when, he was, when Israel was a very independent nation, but then we come under the... Uh, uh, the influence and the control of Egypt and then uh, of Babylon. And you can see how these kings flow. So I just wanted to cover that. Let's go back to Daniel. Daniel 1. In the third year, the reign of of Jehoiakim. So he's going to have an 11-year reign. He was put on the throne by uh, Pharaoh Necho, but Nebuchadnezzar comes. It's going to allow him to reign for uh, until actually the end of his his time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of, of Judah, into his hands with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. Now, if we were reading this in Hebrew, the word Babylon is not the word Babylon. It's the word Babel, which is very interesting. And I think God the Holy Spirit through Daniel is now indicating the uh, conflict between that has been raging ever since creation with the Tower of Babel and also we have here uh, the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is another word for Babylon, the area of Babylon. So this is a reference, just a minute, this is a reference 
to the area of Babylon, which really is the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. And that's what we have here. And this this battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man is continuing here as referenced at the beginning of Daniel. Daniel 1, 1 and 2. Uh, this isn't just the king of Babylon. This isn't just a king of some nation. This is the king of the area that is very pagan and very opposed to God. This is the kingdom of man uh, 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 prospering and taking care of itself, providing for itself with, in their minds without the intervention of God. But God, the kingdom of God, you know, we can say the kingdom of God here, but God continues to intervene into the kingdom of man to carry out his purposes. And I think that's what this is. Uh, One of the the subtle hints here, if we understand what it's doing, what we're saying here is here once more we have this rising up of the kingdom of man that is challenging the kingdom of God. And Daniel is right in the middle of all this, along with uh, his three friends and others as well. And yet a question. Well, the uh, you said in, in Hebrew that Babylon would be Babel, but chapter one was written in Hebrew. It is written in Hebrew, in Hebrew, and just as Genesis is written in Hebrew. So when we come through here and translate this, it should be translated Babel because it's Hebrew. But our translators translated Babylon because I think they don't pick up the significance of what Babel means here. It's, they're in, Babel, in Babylon. That was the area at the time. And so they just translate this as Babylon, because he's the king of Babylon. But the Hebrew says it's the king of Babel. So does that, I, don't, I don't know if I answered your question. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. You made a, a distinction that the first chapter is done in Hebrew. We're not reading it in Hebrew. You're saying it was translated in Hebrew, and what it was, and what it meant, and then we're reading it, but it's not in Hebrew. It is in Hebrew. It was just our editors. A better way for me to say that, and I misled you. A better way to say that is that our editors uh, interpret this word as Babylon instead of translating it as Babel. But the significance of Babel is yes. That's right. And and as you read this, you see it's Nebuchadnezzar, so we know who Nebuchadnezzar is. Everybody knew who he was. But... Uh, when we think of the story of Babylon, we think of Babylon, I think of a place. That's right. That's Excellent. That's exactly what, that's the point, I think. And I think that's the point that God the Holy Spirit has here, is that he's saying this isn't just a place. What we're, look, what we're seeing in history is more than just a collection of events that just happen to be occurring and Babylon happens to be there and uh, that's just the location it could have been uh, somewhere up in Turkey or it could have been somewhere else no, uh, there is this conflict in history between uh, what mankind the cosmic system as sponsored by Satan is constantly trying to do and what God 
is doing in history. And we not only have the word Babel there, but we also have the land Shinar. And if we, could, if, if we wanted to go back to Genesis 10, which I'm resisting doing, which was a lot of fun, to go back to Genesis 10, you'd be able to see the land of Shinar, because that's what it was called at that time. So, uh, that brings us up to uh, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of God. Again, um, the the significance here is that um, there is chaos, we could say, amongst the... uh, the history of these nations back and forth but in all of this God is still in control God is still in control of all these events Um, God is present here at the beginning of the book of Daniel as the sovereign God who controls history Jesus Christ does control history Um, nothing takes place in history outside of his control and we're going to see that Daniel understands this And that's why Daniel's going to be calm in the crisis. And the reason he's going to be able to relax and trust God in the midst of everything that's going on. And one of the ways we know this is that he understands the prophecies. One of the prophecies that we're going to see here in a moment. Uh, The prophecy is going to take us back into Isaiah. As a matter of fact, why don't we try to do that right uh, now. Let's turn to Isaiah 39, and hopefully Jerry will not have any traumas here as we go back into Isaiah. Spent a lot of time there. Uh, Isaiah chapter, I had it here a second ago. Um, Isaiah 39. Isaiah 39. Isaiah 39, beginning in, let's see, verse 6. Isaiah 39, verse 6. Now, I I can't do it that way. Um, Beginning in verse 1. At that time, this is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is on the throne, and... Uh, he has recovered from his death. The Lord is giving him uh, an additional 15 years. And at that time, um, Merodach Baladan, you may have maybe spelled a little bit differently in your Bibles, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointments, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. In other words, he's very proud of what he has here. And they've come, they're envoys. He's showing just how wealthy he is and and how impressive uh, his, uh, his nation, his palace, his capital is. Then Isaiah, the prophet, went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. 
And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs or servants, officials, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Here is this prophecy. And this is written uh, at least a hundred years prior to Daniel going to Babylon. So this is Isaiah writing in the land. So this would have been available to the, uh, uh, the priests, uh, the other prophets, uh, the kings, the people that were supposed to be reading this. And, and, and Isaiah would have been prophesying this. And so Daniel, who we know, uh, and his friends are faithful. They were taught these things. So Daniel knows this. So there he is in Babylon. He is the, uh, the fulfillment of that prophecy, standing there in front of uh, Ozpenazi. Very interesting. So in verse 3, and that's why and he brought the articles into the treasure of his house. Verse 3, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, here's this same word that we're using, officials, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. There's a lot more to be said here, but first of all, the word eunuch, it used to mean that the officials, those servants who were in the king's palace were emasculated, so that the king didn't have to worry at all about them having any familiarity, intimacy is a better way to say that, with his... uh, uh, his harem. But the word remained the same even though later it was not, uh, the officials were not emasculated. In other words, this same word is used for Potiphar. And Potiphar's married, but he is an official, could be translated eunuch. So this does not need to be someone who's emasculated this and it probably is not it's probably just high officials meaning those who serve the king and you'll notice some of the king's descendants some of the nobles young men in whom there was no blemish but good looking gifted in all wisdom possessing knowledge and quick to understand how do they know that and the words that are used here all relate to either wisdom chokma, uh, ability knowledge discernment uh, discretion, decision-making, all of those words apply to the different words that are used here. And so the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, have, a, have some sort of a system to not just determine the IQ, but determine can they use their IQ. So someone who's just smart, who has a lot of knowledge, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be 
uh, wise, prudent in being able to serve the king. So they put them through some very rigorous testing. And not only are they intelligent, but they are gifted in decision-making, gifted in evaluating, uh, gifted in understanding. So uh, God the Holy Spirit goes to great lengths to say uh, the Chaldeans were very careful and very specific in how they did this. And not only that, but they're going to be attractive as well. They're not going to be hard to, to view. And then it says, whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And what we should take from that is that there's going to be the indoctrination. There's going to be a complete immersion in the uh, beliefs of Babel and Shinar, paganism. Um, in, any th- in any culture, uh, it is not neutral. Culture isn't neutral. There's always going to be a belief system that goes with it. And we are certainly going to have a belief system here. And then in verse 5 it says, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and the wine which they drank, which he drank in, the, in three years of training for them, so that at the end of the time they might serve before the king. Notice that this, he didn't just say, Azpanaz, this is what I want you to do, and he goes to do it. No, the king is directing this. The king has a hand in this. They are going to serve him. So he's giving the guidance. This is his curriculum. So if it was just uh, uh, Ashpenaz and Daniel's going to approach him, then there may be some leeway here. Uh, Ashpenaz may say, well, yeah, I think I can do that. But if it's the king saying, do it this way, then you realize the, how tenuous this is for the king's official to make any deviation from it, which is what Daniel is going to request. And then the final thing that we see here, much more to, to say, but uh, verse 6, Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Haniel, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. I think I really got myself screwed up as I was reading that. I looked away. So they have names, but they're going to change their names. And remember, when you're naming someone or you're giving names to something, whatever it is, that's a demonstration of authority and it's a demonstration of ownership. But it's also what we're going to see here is they take away their names that relate to their gods and give them names that will relate to Babylonian gods. And so what we see here is truly an indoctrination, a... Uh, an attempt to change them. They want the intellect, they want the ability, but, they're, but they want to immerse them in Babylonian culture. And um, their, uh, abil- therefore their ability to think in their terms. You're no longer going to be thinking in terms of um, a Jewish religion Jewish culture, you're now going to be thinking in terms of Chaldean. And that's where we'll finish for now and pick this up next week. I would have liked to have gotten a little further, but there's some things here we can discuss. Let me uh, close us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful uh, for the text of Scripture here and God the Holy Spirit's guidance. Help us to understand what's happening and help us to understand also the situation in which Daniel and his three friends find themselves. Uh, there's going to be a extraordinary pressure to change their faith and it would be very easy for them to do so, to simply go along with society, particularly because they are going to be in such an elite situation. Father, help us to realize that 
we face situations as well uh, here in our society. And there's no reason for us to feel extreme pressure. There will be pressure, but you are faithful, you are in control, and you, your grace is sufficient for us. So, Father, we pray that we can apply this to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.